May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable unto you, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. Amen. Amen. The uh, passage from Romans is one that in many cases people do know, and sometimes for the very worst of reasons. Because this is part of the passage in the sequence of Pauline literature that a lot of people have believed and profess that the flesh, which is, leads us to sin, is the flesh of sexuality. As a child growing up, I had some friends who were very much involved in some Pentecostal churches. And they told me that to think of sex is to think of sins and that I would be in trouble. And Paul has gotten the rap, the bad rap, about somehow this context that if you're in the flesh, you're a sinner, but if you're in the spirit, you're with God. What was he really talking about being in the flesh? After listening to a professor of mine in Pauline literature, who in fact, in the process of one of his classes, transformed himself when he was talking about Paul's thorn in the side, he became Paul to us. The entire class was transfixed to the point where I suddenly realized, like myself, no one else was taking notes. We were seeing Paul present with us. And in many ways, I think in his own faith, Dr. Parker was presenting the case for the life in Christ in front of us. Because you remember, Paul was on a journey and he was actually persecuting all the people that he knew that were turning to Christ. It was on his trip to Damascus that he had a conversion experience where he actually lost his ability to speak. Now, for Paul, that's a major, major occurrence. He was very prolific in his writing, and obviously he spoke more than he wrote. But he was absolutely dumbstruck. He had the vision of the presence of Christ in God there, which turned him around to be filled with the Spirit of Christ. What he suddenly realized and what he was talking about in terms of the flesh is that embodiment that is actually quite material, tactile, real. Everything that we touch and know and see, that's our world. And I know it is the attitude behind it. It's the flesh of knowledge, of pride, of vainglory. And it's giving that up and becoming in the spirit of Christ. Which is no small problem. Going into recovery and becoming a member of AA, one of the first things you learn in the 12 steps. The first step is, that you recognize fully that you are powerless over alcohol. Now, the 12 steps have 
broadened their base, and there's a number of other physical things that people have to recognize that they are powerless over. Be it alcoholism of a parent, be it whatever the situation is, all of the 12-step programs, the first step is that. Recognize that I am powerless. Now, that's no small task. As a child, I believed I was powerful. And I was in charge and in control. That I knew what I could do and say and how I could handle things. Unfortunately, my parents sort of pushed the perfection notion, which gave me a little neurotic responses, but whatever. And it wasn't until I went into recovery that I suddenly realized I absolutely was powerless over alcohol and a whole list of other things, particularly my self-pride, my denials, my inability to understand and hear someone else because it was something that I did not agree with. Those are all material things, tactile, real things. The second step, which is the critical piece and is related to the first, is that you suddenly recognizing you're powerless, that you find a higher power to be present to give you some focus, not yourself. Now, that step was the hard one. While I went to church and I was very faithful about being an acolyte and singing in the choir and all those kinds of things, it was just a thing that I did. It wasn't necessarily a spiritual adventure. It wasn't until I went through my recovery that I suddenly realized that there was something greater than myself that I had to allow myself to trust. Not easily. Not right away. And the interesting part is, if you've ever known anyone or have you gone through the 12 steps, it's, it's, <laughs> it leads to this idea that if I make all 12 steps, I'm going to be in good. Everything's going to be fine. And that's the same kind of thinking with number one. You are powerless. You get this idea, and many of us working the steps, all of a sudden feel like we're empowered to control ourselves again. So you go back to one, and two, and three, and four, and back to one, and two, and three, and four. And people look at those recovering saying, what are you, nuts? You can never keep it straight. Well, as long as we are clear about our condition and our powerlessness, and that God will, in fact, allow us to begin to be whole, not in control, there's a big difference. So Paul is speaking about the spirit of Christ. That power that enables us to begin to recognize we are powerless and we're not in control and God will guide us. That's what Paul's talking about here. And it's a very, very difficult transition because in our flesh, in our materialisms, in our control, in our denial, we think we're in charge. And it isn't true. 
And it's a rude awakening to realize that all the things I thought I controlled are just meaningless. Now, having worked through that and looked at that, and the interesting part is this Lent, I've been trying to be more intention, intentional about looking at my thinking of control and power. And let me tell you, it's not been a very successful Lent. Because every time I think I'm beginning to get it, I slide into control again and say, oh, yeah, I know it. Just like the 12 steps. Oh, I did all the 12 steps, so I'm, I'm all right. This is the process to me of faith in the church. This is what it is called to be a community of saints, following in Christ's image. See, notice up to this point, I've avoided the very, very long gospel. <clears throat> that should have covered the whole sermon in itself. But the gospel points out something that I think is really critical to the process of recognizing the difference between being in the flesh and the spirit. That long gospel has the shortest passage in the Bible. I learned it as a young child. I thought I was really smart and in control. He, Jesus wept. Nowhere else is there a, a two-word phrase, although we've extended it here. Jesus began to weep. So we gave some more you know, integrity to the passage. Jesus wept. What were the tears about? What was Jesus weeping for or with? He saw the tears of Mary. He saw the tears of the people supporting Mary. And he was very caught up in all of that. And going back to some historical facts about me, I was told early on that big boys don't cry. There was a conditioning phase where you became strong and tough and you never let tears be seen by anybody else. Well, it's, you know, I mean, like you went to a movie and you were touched by it. So if your tears started, you yawn. Oh, boy. (laughs) Cover that. Don't let anyone see that tear. And the interesting thing is Jesus wept gives us an insight into the depth of God's love for us. Because in his tears, he connected his vulnerability and God to all those around him. To be in Christ is not weeping out of weakness, but sobbing out of strength. Don't, I, I know I'm not going to get confused with people who use tears as a way of controlling. That's back to the whole flesh issue. But his genuineness, his depth of pain he felt and expressed in tears gives us an insight into where we need to be. There are two experiences that happened lately to me. One was with my son in agony over some issues. And we hugged, and he started sobbing. And his body back and forth. And I felt his pain. And I couldn't say words that would ever change any of what was going on for him. 
but I can embrace him and hold him. Also, recently, Sheila and I are talking about various things, and Sheila's had some difficulty with some pain to the point where she likewise, we hugged and she sobbed. There was nothing I could say or do, but yet it was the power of the relationship. The sobbing was out of strength, not out of weakness. And it opened my eyes again to recognize that in this passage, when Jesus weeps, he empowers us to be clear about our powerlessness and that God's gift through Christ is to empower us. It's with that in mind that when he stands in front of the open tomb, he says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus came out.